I'm sorry. Welcome to episode 37 of, of the Political Mike podcast. Race relations, again, are at uh, a testing uh, time as the eyes of the nation have turned to the trial in Milwaukee, of, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, of former police officer Derek Chauvin. A new president faces old opposition as he continues to roll out big proposals uh, right after the victory of the COVID-19 relief package. Um, an, an ardent supporter of President Trump, uh, one of the, the, the strongest voices right now uh, in the GOP, now facing a criminal, uh, or a criminal, uh, a criminal probe uh, by the FBI uh, into some very serious charges, um, and also the Iran nuclear deal seems to be again uh, at a time where there's uncertainty as to whether or not we can actually move forward with a renewed agreement. Here to help me break it all down is a dynamic panel that I'm so excited to have uh, this evening. So without further ado, I'm gonna go ahead and start the introduction. Uh, first, we have back uh, with us, uh, Ms. Dabney Bryce, uh, who's a recent MPA graduate of the University of Delaware uh, in a Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. Uh, previously, she served, she received her Bachelor's uh, of Arts degree in Global Studies at Lay University. She's very grateful for the opportunities she's had over the years uh, because they're all cement, they've all cemented her passion uh, for public service and desire to make a difference policy. Uh, some of her um, experiences include working on the 2020 uh, Delaware Municipal Clerks Institute, the Policy and Research Bureau at the uh, NYC Controller's Office. Um, and she's also, uh, she also has the podcast called uh, the, uh, <laughs> forgive me, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, it's called, and I want to put a plug in because it's an amazing podcast. Um, forgive me. The Uplift Podcast, the Uplift Podcast, and it's available on all uh, streaming platforms. Uh, she also had the opportunity to intern with uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, where I met her on Capitol Hill. Uh, her policy interests are immigration, criminal justice, education, and foreign relations. Currently, she's on the job search and hoping to return to D.C. soon. Um, she's also a world traveler, and she uh, has been to 10 countries so far. She's hoping to add to her list uh, before when it's safe to do so, of course, when COVID-19 restrictions uh, subside. So Dabney, it's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, welcome back. Next, we have uh, Mr. Egu Noangpa, uh, also not a guest to the, not, not a new guest to the political mic. He's a, he's currently a vice president at one of the largest financial services institutions in the world. He is part of the supply, the supplier diversity and responsible sourcing team, uh, where he serves as a supplier diversity manager, specifically uh, for the local markets and partnerships. In his position, uh, Egu serves as an advocate for small and diverse businesses, a liaison to key partner organizations, a project manager for strategic initiatives, and a manager and an, an analyst of related supplier diversity uh, spend data. Uh, he also serves as a former a formal advisor uh, for, for the Nuangpa family business uh, Teguza Solutions, which is a digital media events marketing and advertising firm located in the greater New York City area. Uh, he is heavily involved in diversity an inclusion space and is frequently called on for public speaking opportunities. Uh, he earned his bachelor's of business administration degree with an emphasis in accounting from Andrews University. Um, and he also graduated as a member of the prestigious J and Andrews honors program. Uh, he also holds an MBA from the RH Smith school of business at the university of Maryland. 
Uh, Mr. Wangpa, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you, welcome back. Uh, next we have Camilla Med, uh, who was a former director of campus programs and regional political director for former Senator Doug Jones uh, for, for, for US Senate. Uh, Camilla is also a social worker, uh, visual artist and political activist from San Francisco, California. She's a graduate of Oakland University, uh, class of 2017. Uh, Camilla has a background in social work with field experience in medical work, uh, I'm sorry, in medical social work, uh, human rights advocacy, crisis services, and child welfare. Uh, she also serves as an elected member of the Alabama Democratic Party's executive board and is currently working on a campaign. Um, at, at, she was also working this past fall as a campaign consultant, um, and she also is pursuing a master's in public administration with a concentration in public policy. Camilla, it's always a, it's always great to have you and, and to see what you bring to the table. So thanks for being here. And then Chris Johnson, uh, who's a proud native of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, also an alum of Oakwood University, where he earned a bachelor's of arts degree in uh, pre-law with a concentration in political science. Uh, Chris currently serves as the, direct, the, the district office chief of staff uh, for Pennsylvania State Representative Joanna McClinton. Uh, previously, he served as a Capitol Hill intern uh, with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation in Washington, D.C. Um, and he also interned with the 2016 Democratic National Convention Committee in Philadelphia. Um, he is a former field organizer for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign as well. Uh, Chris, it's always a treat to have you back. Um, you always make the show more interesting, so thanks for being here. And then last but certainly not least at all, uh, Mr. Paul Lisbon, uh, who is a Kansas City native and studied African studies uh, and politics at George Washington University while, er while also interning on Capitol Hill uh, with the World Bank Group and at the Obama White House. Uh, he is currently in his final year at Howard University School of Law uh, and is interested in private equity and bankruptcy law. Uh, before attending Howard, uh, Paul was a staffer for Hillary for America headquarters at the, and the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, he also served as a traveling staffer on various presidential campaigns in 2020, uh, and he will begin his career at Struck, I'm sorry, Struck versus Struck and Struck and Levon this upcoming fall. So, amazing panel, very engaged panel, uh, diverse in terms of both public and private uh, sectors. Um, so I'm glad to have this kind of diversity tonight especially with the issues uh, up for conversation. So I want to start off by, you know, just addressing the fact that, you know, we're now coming off the heels of COVID-19 uh, politics, it seems. Um, attention seems to be transitioning elsewhere. But it's, not it's noteworthy um, that, you know, as Democrats, you know, put this bill put forward without any Republican support, uh, all of a sudden now we're seeing Republican legislatures, uh, legislators in both the, he the House and the Senate uh, coming forward and voicing uh, support for the for the bill that they did not vote for. For instance, uh, Representative Madison Cawthorn, uh, congressman from North Carolina, uh, who uh, seems to be a rising star in the Republican Party, sent out a tweet this past Tuesday uh, touting uh, that some funds that community health centers and his district will be receiving are, are a good thing, um, even though he voted against the legislation that made that money possible. Uh, Cawthorn wrote that he was happy to announce that North Carolina's 11th district received a number of grants um, from the from the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, he said, I'm proud to see taxpayer dollars return to NC District 11. Um, and, you know, that just seemed to echo the sentiments of Senator Roger Wicker uh, of Mississippi, another Republican who also celebrated the American Rescue Plan uh, and, and its benefits, uh, but also voted against it. I want to get your thoughts because what's also noteworthy is that uh, Congressman John Yarmouth, of, of a Democrat from Kentucky, predicted this would happen. He said, you know, 
when you're going to have, he said, you know, Republicans are all going to vote against this, he said, and then they're going to show up at every ribbon cutting and at every project funded out for this bill. And they're going to pump out their chests and take credit for all of these great benefits that are coming to their citizens. Um, Is this a strategy that we're expected to see play into the Republicans' hands? Uh, Will people forget uh, the, 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 the very strict partisan lines that this bill was voted on? Anyone can jump in. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I guess the answer is yes. Um, uh, one of the things that we always get from Republican politics is uh, unity on votes and then unity in the way they interact after the vote. So I, I'm expecting uh, more of the same. Um, I'm not surprised by it at all. Um, it's amazing that you know they just voted when uh, there was a different president in office um, they were able to, more of them to vote for, in principle, for a lot of the same things uh, just a few months ago. And then in unison, they all held hands uh, and voted the same way. So uh, to be expected, I, I think there's I think there's going to be a little bit of problems on their side, only because you got to imagine that um, there's just going to be this euphoria coming out of COVID if we do come out of it, because, you know, the Southern states t- tend to uh, not be adhering to the, the slow and ga- gradual return to uh, public life. But when we do, there's be this euphoria, people just going out and being able to work and go to school and, and go and, and find jobs and date and all the things that make people happy. Um, it'll be an unmistakable euphoria. So I think they're just trying to get on the bandwagon before it goes any farther. Chris? I was gonna say that I I find it troubling that um, the political incentives that we see in Washington are, you know, the more often that you vote against the president, if you are a Republican in Congress, uh, whether in the House or in the Senate, um, the more often that you vote against the uh, op, you know the opposition president in power, um, the, the more I guess notoriety you'll gain within the party. Um, you, you think about your own political future. Uh, you'll you'll have the opportunity to go farther and say you know whether you're running for another office or a higher office or running for presidency yourself. You can say you know I've had the strongest track record of voting against President Biden. Um, and we saw the same thing happen on the Democratic side, right? When when Trump was in office. Um, and so I think that this sort of environment creates um, less of an incentive for um, compromise or even just some sort of uh, a semblance of cohesion and delegation, uh, you know, amongst this governing body in which people should be able to come together, no matter if you wear red or blue um, on your jersey, you should be able to come together to figure out what are the best policies for for the people. Um, and so and and. And part of that is understanding that like this bill was very popular because there are so many people across America, not in Washington, D.C., but in, you know, cities and states all across the country who needed relief, um, who have been struggling because of businesses having closed, schools having closed, um, rents, you know, being due today (laughs) and folks not having money in their pockets. And so this is the reality that people are facing. They needed relief. And, we, you know, you want to be able to look to your government, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat to say, we're going to help you. And we're going to actually, you know, do the work and vote in your favor. Um, but unfortunately, that did not happen with the Republican Party, predictably, like Egu, Egu was saying. 
Um, but it's also funny to see them now try to uh, join the parade and join the chariot um, as, it's, as it's becoming more and more popular as a, as a piece of legislation. So let me ask, oh, Paul, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I think that we, I, I agree with uh, both of uh, the previous speakers in saying that there are these kind of broad social programs with at Social Security, if we look at Medicare, if we look at Medicaid, if we look at even some welfare programs, like SNAP, for example, that when they come out are very, very, very unpopular. And the right says, this is socialism. It'll never work. We can't do this. And then we get dollars in the hands of American citizens. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like, wow, we've always needed to do this. We're so happy to see this money go out to the people that need it. And it really does beg the question, kind of, why do we keep finding ourselves, especially Democrats, in this bind of kind of trying to count out to Republicans on things that are very, very, very popular nationally? And so I think that we should maybe kind of consider like what it means to really put out a policy that is smart, kind of benefits a lot of people and works pretty well, save for the minimum wage hike, um, and really let the people kind of be the people who decide whether it's working or not. Because clearly the, the folks, the Republicans in Congress, have missed something that most Americans haven't. So let me ask this, uh, Senator Mitt Romney, who was the most recent recipient of the uh, um, award given by the Kennedy family, the, Cor the Profiles and Courage Award, um, because of his position of voting for impeachment against uh, President Donald Trump, the only uh, senator in history so far uh, to vote against uh, someone in their party in terms of impeachment, a president in their party for impeachment. He recently said uh, that uh, President Biden missed an opportunity um, and that it was a hit and miss so far. If he were to describe Biden's presidency, he would describe it as a hit and miss uh, because of the fact that he did not work enough, according to him, to garner enough support from the Republican side to be able to say, well, this is a bipartisan measure uh, that, you know, the American, the American Rescue Package uh, is a bipartisan measure. I want to get your thoughts on his criticism. Do you agree or disagree? Well, uh, once bitten, twice shy, right? So we were all alive for uh, the Democrats and the Republican stall tactics of wait and cut, bring us around first, and then uh, we'll pass it all together. Uh, I, I think Biden is, is too savvy and too smart to fall for that again. I think he, uh, one of the things that, you know, Mitt Romney, and, and, you know, I think he's benefiting from, he's in a state like Utah, which is going to be behind him no matter what. Um, so he can take risks and talk and take, uh, you know, measured risks that other Republicans can't take. But when it comes down to, you know, he's still a Republican, he still has to speak to the point where he has to try to find some weakness in Joe Biden. Um, not surprised by that comment, but I'm, I'm glad that Joe Joe Biden pushed ahead with it because, you know, he has he already has Joe Manchin to worry about. We can't worry about bringing along um, the Republican Party on things that just make sense. I would agree. I think I, I disagree with um, Senator Romney's uh, choice of words, because at the end of the day, the Republicans were going to vote against this plan, no matter how hard Biden tried to work with them. And he did try to work with them. But again, we're in a pandemic. People need to pay rent, pay for meals. Um, they have children to worry about. There was a, there, it's an emergency. And so there is no time to dilly dally to wait and see if they will agree or to continue this fight when the American people need resources and they need to know that no matter what their president is going to provide them what they need in order to take care of their families. 
And also, one of the things that I like is that the Biden administration was very savvy in how they would define bipartisanship. So instead of saying, you know, about, you know, for their, their view, being bipartisan means, you know, getting Republican votes in the Senate. Instead, they were saying that, you know, since there are 70 percent or more um, of Americans who agree with this uh, relief bill, then that means that the bipartisanship is actually within the people. Like we're seeing it across uh, partisan lines um, through the people, not through the politicians. And so in that in that spirit, they're saying that actually this relief plan was bipartisan, not, you know, amongst you all who have political interests and, you know, your own interests, but amongst the people who, as Dabney was just saying, have been struggling and need released, uh, relief desperately. And so I think that's a good framing for them. Um, and I think they should continue to kind of frame bipartisanship in that manner um, if they can, especially in the sense that people want to see popular legislation passed. Right. And instead of, you know, trying to wait to get um, other um, elect, you know, to trying to wait to get the other party on board just for the sake of, you know, bipartisanship, you can use that spirit by following the urgency that the people have been showing and the support that the people on the ground have been showing and um, supporting bills that will help them, not just the politicians. Yeah. And I think also something that has been kind of valuable, and I think we have kind of short memories about politics. Um, but for the past four years, we're really used to the president and his kind of lackeys getting down in the mud all the time about these things. And I think that's something that has been refreshing about the Biden administration is that they really are like, we're not here to have a fight with you on TV. We're not here to get down in the muck about whether or not this was bipartisan or not, or whether or not enough people liked it, or whether or not it was like really a good or bad idea politically. We're here to pass what we can. Um, kind of work towards the center ideologically, even if the Republican party refuses to join us there, but we're not gonna talk about it. We're not gonna have 10 rounds on Twitter between our press secretary and some reporter. And so I think that like that kind of focusness and that sort of directness um, and and seriousness of purpose is, is a good change, I think. I put my hand on the camera like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that this is really interesting, um, Mitt Romney talking about a, a swing and a miss, because um, I feel like he's kind of on the right page, right? He's like, hmm, something's wrong here with the process that we've got. And then he's like, is it Biden? And it's like, it might actually be kind of like our current process and, and as a whole, <laughs> you know? Um, and even even thinking about compromise, the things that, that we have conversations with about what we're compromising, it's like, let's see if we can find a middle ground, but it'd be a middle ground between whether or not I have rights. You know what I'm saying? It's like, what? <laughs> you know, like whether or not people have the right to live. You know what I'm saying? So even, even this shift, you know, this is exactly what we should be doing is looking at just the needs of the American people only. Right. Because we have a lot of people who, in, in the name of keeping their own job as whatever representative, the cost is that what the American people lose theirs. Right. <laughs> and even at the beginning, it was funny because um, we're talking about going back outside, you know, COVID and like, you know, getting back to work. And um, and somebody described, said, use the word euphoria. And I just kind of laughed in my mind because I, I don't think I've ever like work and euphoria were like two words that were not working in my mind. Like we're so excited to get back in and work like okay like you got that but um but yeah i i i, I want better for us because i i feel like i'm in a space where i'm i'm done clapping for the bare minimum like yeah wow finally you know like i don't know it's we've it's been a long time coming people are suffering people have literally 
unfortunately lost their lives. It's chop chop. You know what I'm saying? Like for real. So I want to turn our attention. To, oh, I'm sorry, Egwu, you had something to say. Go yeah, ahead. and I, I want to remind everyone that you know, with all the controversy that happens in the Senate, right? The vast majority of the gray hairs in the Senate, they like Joe Biden. Like he's their guy. Like Republican or Democrat, they like him. He's the type of guy who they would go out with afterwards. They knew his kids. They know his grandkids. He knows theirs. Uh, so a lot of the bad will is is pageantry uh, because they have to vote that way in front of their constituents or even in front of their party leaders want them to. But behind closed doors, you're not going to have the friction. Um, that we've seen towards the last two presidents. It's not. It's just not happening behind closed doors. So I, I wanted to turn our attention a little bit to the infrastructure bill. Uh, you know, a lot of the attention now has moved on to another item. Uh, and this item uh, seemed to be the one thing where you can get bipartisan support for the long, for in, in recent years, and, and at least, um, you know, President Biden's proposal, uh, he is called by him, a once in a generation uh, investment in America. Uh, he also exclaimed uh, during his remarks on this proposal that he does not think that it's adequate enough to just tinker around the edges. Um, this bill, of course, would be $2.5 trillion uh, in, in terms of an investment in eight years. Over the course of eight years, it includes uh, $621 billion uh, to invest in roads, bridges, transportation, infrastructure, $580 billion for manufacturing, research and development, job training efforts, $400 billion in home care for elderly uh, disabled um, and over 300 billion in water infrastructure, broadband access, electrical grids. Uh, President Biden's infrastructure plan also includes 70, uh, I'm sorry, $174 billion in spending to boost the electric vehicle market and shift away from gas powered cars. The plan also proposes $100 billion in funding to update the country's electric grid and make it more uh, resilient to climate disasters such as the recent winter storm that disrupted Texas's way of life, their power grid uh, that was impacted negatively. Um, so if signed into law, the plan would rank as one of the largest federal efforts ever to curb the country's uh, planet warming greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so the question is, you know, how do you pay for all that? For those who are fiscally conservative, how do you pay for all that especially? Um, so to pay for all that, the plan calls for raising the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Uh, in short, multinational corporations pay 21% tax whenever they do business, wherever they do business, uh, and also ends federal subsidies uh, for fossil fuel companies. Um, the battle lines seem to have been drawn already, as Senator uh, Mitch McConnell, the minority leader now, uh, called it a Trojan horse. He said it's like, it's called infrastructure, but inside the Trojan horse, uh, there's going to be more borrowed money and massive tax increases on all the productive parts of our economy, according to him. He said that Democrats may use reconciliation process to get the bill through uh, even an evenly divided uh, Congress, uh, but McConnell said that they want to reverse the tax uh, reform that we did in just 2017. I want to ask you, panelists: Is it wise uh, for the Democratic Party to use the reconciliation process for this uh, legislative uh, item, or should they save it for something else? Um, should they go ahead and allow this to go through the normal uh, vote process and possibly be subjected to being filibustered? I'll jump in. Um, so what I think about this is kind of twofold. I think personally, the legislation isn't really progressive enough to really leverage all of this attention um, and and press on it. I think that like if they were saying, 
we're going to have a national national $15 minimum wage, if they were saying we're going to ensure paid parental leave to every American, if they were considering some of these like big structural changes, and there are big things obviously in, in the legislation, but I think we have to ask ourselves, like, is the infrastructure bill look like the Green New Deal? Because there are things that like really are controversial and I think the Democrats will need kind of this, I don't know, this this ace in the hole, as it were, um, for some things. But I don't know if if infrastructure is the right thing, just because I do think that like they can really get to a place where like we can all agree the roads and bridges in this country could be better. And I think that any Republican who's like, it's going to cost too much really is ignoring, first and foremost, the health and safety of the people, the American people. But second of all, like the the idea that it's kind of like something that's going to come due eventually, right? We're not just going to continue to have bad roads and continue to have bad infrastructure and not start paying a price. So I think that it's not a great place for them to fight. And I think that the Republicans picking a fight with them also doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense ideologically, because I think that most Americans agree, like we could do more to have a better infrastructure. And, you know, I was thinking because I was looking at, uh, you know, some uh, a documentary on what Mohammed bin Salman uh, had done for, uh, you know, his country in Saudi Arabia, how he brought his country into the 21st century. And when I looked at the infrastructure, the the, the trains that they use, uh, the fact that they've incorporated uh, malls and, and new kinds of uh you know, theaters and technology for the young people to enjoy. And I, I looked at it and it really looked like something that could really give an American city, a major American city like Miami, New York, Los Angeles, a run for its money. Uh, I mean, the, the 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 buildings were very prestigious looking, very futuristic. Um, and, and when I'm looking at, I don't think it's just unique to Saudi Arabia. When you go around the world and you see that these countries are investing in their infrastructure, you know, um, and then you go to the New York or DC Metro, you know, and you see uh, what we've got here in terms of, you know, jam, you know, it, it's just no comparison, it seems. And I think it's long overdue and everyone agrees with, with it. Um, but wh why do you think that McConnell would call this a Trojan horse? And what does what do the Republican Party uh, members gain in obstructing this? I mean, wouldn't they want to be able to go back to their t constituents and say, look, this is what we we bought back for you. We need more uh, legislative uh, solutions like this. Vote for more of us. Well, I mean, depends on what you what you think is really the Trojan horse aspect of it. I think one of the things in the 2017 bill that was geared primarily against Democrats was the SALT changes, where they limited your SALT deduction to $10,000. Every In most blue states up and down the, the corridor, people are paying more than $10,000 in, in property tax alone, let alone uh, their state and local tax that they're paying. So that was a, 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 a piece of legislation that was designed to affect Democrats more than Republicans. So there was one that was one thing that the Democrats, they might have let it go through. Really, they wanted it to be on the last bill in, in the stimulus package. But the Democrats are not going to let this one go by without that being addressed for uh, the blue states. So Mitch McConnell doesn't want you know, that portion to be overturned because that was a legacy piece that he was able to make targeted legislation. I don't actually remember that ever happening in history before where there's a piece of legislation that was primarily squared at the democratic states and it went through and it, and it got there. So I think that's what he's talking about. Um, I think 
if I'm Joe Biden, I go on infrastructure early. Everyone always says they'll do it later because there's bipartisan, they can get it done. And then they run into political problems. They run into COVID-19 and it doesn't get done. Get it done early, get the money out there um, and then spend your four years implementing it. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out because um, on, on the Republican side, obviously the, the senators and members of Congress may have their own interests um, but if you go down to the state and local level, if you're a Republican governor, which, you know, most of the country has Republican governorships, um, you it is in your interest to get money in order to fix the roads and bridges and, and the highways um, and you, in your state. Right. Like that is what, you know, your constituents want. That is what constituents are calling state and local legislators um, about all the time. I work in a state office as well. So I actually received these calls <laughs> as well. Um, and so I cannot see. I just don't see there being, you know, this fierce um, opposition toward it. I do think that the fight will be if it if they try to go to bipartisan traditional um, way of passage, then there may be a fight around um, increasing taxes and whether you know, you know, increasing taxes on corporations or folks making four hundred thousand dollars or more or whatever it will be. Like that way, that may be the fight. Um, and you know, we'll we'll see how that shakes out. But I do not see you know there being this as fierce opposition against, you know, something that is so popular as expanding broadband connectivity, which is really important um, in rural communities across the country, particularly also in the Southern Belt, um, but also here in, in my home state of Pennsylvania, which is a large rural uh, Commonwealth as well. Um, and even in the Commonwealth of Kentucky in uh, Mitch McConnell's backyard, like these are things that are important to people um, and impact their everyday lives. And so it's gonna be interesting to see um, how this fight shakes out, um, or if you know the Repu the Democratic side just decides to say, "Listen, we'll do the simple thing. We'll do it through reconciliation, and see if um, senators like Kirsten Sinema and uh, Joe Manchin will even allow that to go forward." So here's the thing: you've got I think five Republicans now announcing they're retiring. Right? Um, you've got 2022 on the horizon. Um, I'm living. I just moved to this area in Georgia. The internet here is poor. Um, you know, it's it's a struggle for me to be able to have a, a class where I'm not experiencing some kind of disruption. And, you know, if I'm someone, if I'm Mitch McConnell and I'm thinking of, you know, folks like Marco Rubio who are up for re-election in Florida, um, I'm looking at, you know, Raphael Warnock's seat. You know, he has to run again next year uh, because, you know, he took um, Kelly Leffler's seat and she was appointed by a governor. Um, so, I, it, I would think it's in my best interest to be able to say, look, we bought back broadband access during the time in which your kids were, were restricted to being online, you know, for schooling. Um, this is something that, you know, would hit home with a lot of mothers, I think, uh, in traditionally conservative Republican uh, homes, households. Um, I think, you know, that would be the smart decision to do. And especially if, if you're on your way out the door, wouldn't you want the last thing you do to be to put your uh, successor in the best position possible to get elected. Um, your thoughts, anyone? Yeah, I think it just kind of assumes a baseline reasonableness that I just, I don't know, I don't know if I really give that that's there, right? Like I think that it really does like assume like we're, we're playing all in the same playing field, we all want the same things. And I think that like in a lot of ways, so many of the policies at the end of the last administration were really about grabbing power, about kind of leaving a lasting kind of twisted legacy um, and not really about ensuring continuity. So I don't know, I just, I don't know if I buy the baseline proposition that we were working with rational players, but 
That's just me. I would have to agree, especially when we're talking about Mitch McConnell, um, who has made it his effort to basically vote against and to fight against anything that may be actually helpful towards his constituents. Um, and yet he keeps being reelected. Re and so again, I think um, from an earlier point that this is all like pageantry, like this is another pageant show for Mitch McConnell. Like he's always going to be doing this. Um, and so, yeah, I don't really, I don't, I, I, the bar is really low for me when it comes to him. Um, there may be other Republicans who may um, not take this bite, who may be willing just to be like, okay, it's infrastructure. Um, this is something most people want and we can all agree on um, as opposed to any other sort of thing that they would consider as like socialism. Um, so yeah, the bar is really low, at least for Mitch McConnell and a few others. And, and to your point, Dabney, um, you know, during the debate where, you know, Mitch McConnell was running against uh, Amy McRae, there was a point in that debate, uh, if you remember, where, um, you know, they were trying to talk about COVID-19 relief. Amy McRae was saying, you know, why is he voting against, why, why isn't he voting for, you know, they were, he was trying, she was trying to engage him with the, with, on the issues and they asked for him to have a rebuttal. And he said, no, move on to the next question. And he had this grin on his face. And there was this assumption that, you know, I don't have to answer this question <laughs> because I know that my seat is safe. Um, and so the only one who has something to gain here and everything to lose was my opponent. Anyone else? I, mean, I think also like Mitch McConnell's main objective for these next two years is to get back in the seat of power, right? It is to be able to retain or to retrieve the gavel um, and become Senate Majority Leader again, and so that is his entire, like his his entire political calculus is centered around that. It is not exactly centered around what is best for the the, the people of the country or for the Commonwealth of Kentuckians, but mainly um, figuring out a way in which he can get back in in power. And it may look like you know allowing for um, folks you know in Georgia and Florida to be able to support a bill like this. I'm not sure if that'll be. You know, part of that calculus. But if you think about just the human cost of, you know, having poor infrastructure and considering, you know, the reality of climate change and how it is impacted, particularly, um, you know, places all across the country, but also in the Southern Belt, you, you think about these um, 100 years hurricanes and tornadoes that are ripping through um, Oklahoma and Texas and, you know, Georgia and all these different places. Like at some point, the, the people will say, listen, we have to do something about this. We've got to find a way to you know, protect um, our, our, our infrastructure, protect the buildings, protect all that we have, protect our property so that we can have a country um, in 50 to 100 years so that we aren't, you know, having to mobilize and have to, having to move and, you know, have a, the, the risk of losing our lives um, become a reality for ourselves and our, and our grandchildren. Um, and so that's part of the messaging that I think Democrats have to really push is not only, you know, this is something that will um, be popular for the, the, the Biden administration, but also um, great for the American people, right? It is, it is, this is an, a matter of you know, economic justice. It's a, it's a matter of putting people back to work. It's a matter, it's a matter of you know, creating more jobs, but also keeping our country safe. Um, and so I'm interested in seeing how this all plays out, but I hope that we'll be able to really have an infrastructure uh, week that leads, that leads out to being um, a bill that passes and, and impacts the country in a, in a very positive way. So another topic that has really just captured, uh, you know, the attention of uh, people on both sides of the aisle, uh, no matter where your political leaning is, uh, 
is the Georgia voting bill uh, that was just enacted into law by uh, Governor Brian Kemp last week. Uh, so last week, the Republican-controlled Georgia's uh, state government approved a, a sweeping uh, new law that imposes strict voter identification requirements for absentee ballots, limits ballot drop box locations, um, and it also gives the legislator greater control over elections and criminalizes offering food and water to voters standing in line. In response, President Biden said uh, this past Wednesday that he would strongly support uh, the Major League Baseball uh, being moved to its moving its all-star game from Atlanta, Georgia, um, after Georgia enacted this new uh, voting restriction uh, that disproportionately targets uh, black residents and other residents of color. Um, in his interview, uh, President Biden pointed to athletes fueling political change, specifically in the National Basketball Association. And uh, such a move uh, would not be the first in sports history. In 2017, the NBA moved its all-star game out of Charlotte, North Carolina, after the state legislature there passed a bill discriminating against transgender people. Uh, the very people uh, who are victimized the most are the people who are leaders in these very sports, Brian told ESPN. Uh, I want to get your thoughts because also Governor Brian Kemp had something to say about that. He called Biden's support for moving the M MLB out of Atlanta uh, ridiculous. He said, when the president of the United States says something, you know, a lot of people pay attention. But what Joe Biden needs to do is look at the side by side of Georgia and Delaware. Kemp said uh, yesterday, I'm sorry, today, Thursday, referring to the voting regulations in the two states. Uh, he's focused on trying to get Major League Baseball, according to Governor Kemp, uh, to pull the game out of Georgia, which is ridiculous. So when I was thinking about this, this reminded me during the, of the early 1960s, um, when you had groups like SNCC uh, suggesting that, you know, the federal government should do more and specifically that it would, should withhold federal funds from states and state activities um, that, you know, continue to use these funds, but at the same time, discriminate against uh, people of color, African-Americans. Um, it reminded me of the hesitancy of the Kennedy administration during that time period uh, to use the civil, to use the legislation at the time at its disposal. Remember, this is before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, and, you know, you had a reluctant Kennedy because Kennedy was hoping to focus on civil rights after he would win re-election in 64. Therefore, he could, you know, he knew that the Southern Democrats wouldn't go for it. So he'll split the party and then he can hope to win the support of moderate Republicans. Of course, he was assassinated in 63, didn't get a chance to run and Lyndon Johnson took over. We know the rest, but I wanna get your, your thoughts on Governor Kemp's response, Biden's call for the MLB. Do you think it's enough or should he, is that enough or, or should more pressure uh, be applied? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of some of the corporations that have stepped up and uh, made it a little bit uncomfortable. Um, I think it's early to say whether that pressure is going to work. Um, I think the Georgia bill, um, a lot of people argue it both ways, but I don't, I, no water and no food. I don't think that's an arguable point. I think it's kind of pointed at one people. Um, and I think some people don't even understand why that's even a point because they've never waited eight hours in line to vote. So, um, I, I think you're, we're gonna we we are all on the same team on that portion, but I think it's going to be it's going to have to hurt them in their pockets. Meaning they're going to have to have Delta, Coca Cola, and all these people that they're they're appealing to really push back on them because I think they've seen the power of the vote that can be mobilized in Georgia. It has to be a very scary thing um, that Stacey Abrams is still lurking. 
uh, rubbing her hands and saying, okay, well, this is how you want to play this. And she's thinking of the next way, how uh, she's going to mobilize everybody and, and this time get Kemp out of there. So um, it, it's a power grab, but I think the pressure uh, is, is the right way to go. Yeah, and I'll just jump in really quick. Oh, Camilla, did you want to jump in? Um, you go. I'll go right after you. Go ahead. Um, I just wanted to say that I think that you know there is something to be said for these kinds of kind of like punitive measures to be taken, but I do wonder how it affects people in Georgia. Right, there are a lot of people who definitely were waiting for the game to come. They were going to sell their wares. The weather is going to be nice. We're really getting kind of to the hopefully the end of co the COVID season, and so I think that for a lot of people there it represented something that was really good. And I think that we we as Democrats and especially the Biden administration kind of needs to think about the ways in which their actions will impact really the very most poor people. I mean, so I wonder. I I, I wonder if it's enough, but I also wonder if it's the kind of right move. I don't know what other things you can do, but I also wonder if there's a way for. Biden to talk to people on the ground there to say like, what is it that you need from us and how do we join in solidarity with you? Instead of just saying, this is what we think is best, here's what we're gonna do. So I wanna also, before I jump to you, Camilla, ask the question, uh, you know, is it constitutional? Uh, because I can already see the, the legislative arguments forming about how this violates the Commerce Clause, uh, how this is not narrowly tailored to address uh, legitimate harm. Um, you know, I'm thinking about um, all of the different implications that you know, this call could 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 have. Camilla? Well, <laughs> I am not a lawyer, so I will not be answering whether or not it's constitutional. Anyone else can feel free to jump in for that portion. Um, but I think that it's I think it's crazy that we're even having this conversation right now about voter suppression for since we've been having it for so long. One and that even in 2020, we had said, you know, Alabama did early voting, their version of early voting. Um, and people, even for early voting, right, that was in order to like limit the crowds because of COVID, COVID da, da, da. And we had people who had arrived earlier than I had. I arrived at the courthouse at, at 7 a.m., multiple courthouses. They didn't open until 9. People had been there before um, I had gotten there. And then the people who went in to vote, who were there since 6 a.m., left around the same time I left, which was like 1 p.m., right? And so that's like nuts to me. A lot of these people are elderly. A lot of these people are really in need of food and what there's no chairs. There's nobody to sit. So that's like insane to, to criminalize an action like providing food and water generally to older folks and likely older voters of color. Right. And then on top of that, um, I talked to my me and my friend talk often about these sort of like manufactured pre battles that we have that keep us from even getting to the conversation about what we're even here to talk about, right? People are suffering, people are losing their jobs, people are hungry, people are being evicted, and then you want to keep me from even getting the right to vote on the day to get somebody in there to actually represent me? Pre These pre-battles, right? We can't even get to actually providing justice, any sort of sense of well-being to the American people because we can't even get to and so that seems nuts to me. And it almost, it connects, I think, also, um, Mike, to your first set of questions around, like, what is Republican interest actually? Really? You know what I'm saying? Like, in, in a world where we didn't have, you know, a two-party system, checks and balances, whatever, whatever, if we were to just give Republicans full reign, right, hey, go ahead and do whatever it is that you're going to do, what would that look like? Really? You know what I'm saying? What would be passed who would be hurt, 
right? What communities would never recover? So then we have these, you really, if you are sitting here trying to criminalize giving water and food to people who are trying to vote, what is your interest? And is your interest at all in, in favor of the actual American people or, or is it in self? Because that's all I'm really seeing, especially from, from a lot of people, but especially from, from Republican representatives. We have a lot of folks who, who ran this last cycle on no platform, just vibes. You know what I'm saying? They didn't have like not a single thing about what they're finna do, who, you know, nothing. And then people got in, got in line to put them in office. So when we have people who are literally holding these seats now, didn't have a background, don't got a plan, don't really know what's happening, doesn't really know what's going on, doesn't even really have either the experience or the ability to empathize enough to understand that people are suffering, then really what is Republican interest? And so that just, I don't know, it, it, it worries me. Thank you. Anyone else? <laughs> well, before we move on, I, I just wanted to put a plug in because you know what was also notable about the events that took place since last week uh, with the passing and enactment of this bill was that you had a state representative, uh, Park Cannon, a Georgia state representative arrested uh, for knocking on the door of Governor Brian Kemp. Now, I saw a, a, a meme and it really just, I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since that event. And it put by side by side photos of the officers arresting the Georgia state representative, Park Cannon, and also the, the, the Michigan uh, officers standing there patiently as you had rioters screaming in their face because they wanted to hang the governor. They wanted to assassinate uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, two completely different scenarios. I wanna get your thoughts also, if you can't elaborate on that. Yeah, really quickly, and then anybody else can jump in. Um, that was a crazy scene to witness, right? And I just, I want us really to make note, and I know we're gonna touch upon a lot of things, but it's almost hard. I'm, I, I, I'm trying to formulate my words because I don't want to, over-intellectualize what feels really, there's one enemy. We have a common enemy, you know what I'm saying? And and the enemy has also stated their enemy. This is our, our, our representative, right? But she looks a very certain way because last time we chatted, actually, we had a whole other government building where they was just letting folks in, <laughs> you know? You know, like literally. And so I, I think that I think that it's very, very important during this time that we are we are again receiving very clear messages about what is going on, about what the interest is, about who the interest is in. And I I I I, I don't know. It's a kind of a loss for words for me personally. <laughs> yeah, I'll just jump in really quickly. I think um Park also represents kind of this intersection of youth, Park is queer. There is this like idea that like it's a young black queer person who's 28 years old who really is standing at the forefront of all of these battles. And I think that there's something to kind of take away from 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 Parker's bravery, right? Like, right? Like I think in the traditional canon of what we think is brave, right? Like this year, the Profile and Courage Award from the Kennedy family will be going to Mitt Romney, who we just talked about, kind of as being a little feckless and not really having a sort of real backbone or a ground to stand on when it comes to his decision making. And if we look at Park Cannon, it's like, well, if I'm the Kennedy family, 
that seems like a much more appropriate recipient of this kind of award. You know, she's getting dragged off before her 30th birthday to be arrested for something that she believes in. So I think that like, just thinking about the ways in which hopefully the political discourse will start to shift, it has to include Republicans, obviously, if we can, but it also has to include Democrats because I think that we need to make it clear that like the things that we want as a party, the things that we desire, and the goals that we have are really in line with people who are willing to put all of that on the line. I, I think I think the movement needs that image, imagery. I'm sorry she had to go through that. I was horrified with the way she was treated, but I think people need the juxtaposition that they saw because um, there was people at, on January 6th who were making excuses. Like um, they were understaffed. Um, the police were letting them in. Um, they didn't do anything. You know, there, there was a lot of, of, of excuses that were made, but you can't compare that how a brutal arrest where it took, I, I, at one point I saw about six officers surrounding her um, dragging her basically off and arresting her uh, for knocking on a door um, in a room where she, by being an elected official, she was actually entitled to be. So I, I think I think that's something that people need to be able to see in order to change minds later on and kind of take away some of those um, excuses. I would also like to add that um when she was trying to get into the room that again, she was allowed to be in, it was locked. And it's, for me, that was a clear statement of they knowing that this is wrong, but because, and if we're going back to um, the question earlier about whose interests are they serving, it's obviously their own and obviously it's all about power. And so they know that because of this past ele election that black votes matter, um, that poor votes matter. And it's when we see voter suppression, when we see sort of uh, gerrymandering, we know that that's not a clear example of the communities um, that live in these states. So for example, like Georgia is, uh, we would have seen it as red, but in fact, it's more blue than red because of certain communities um, that are black and brown communities. And so this, um, this situation just is, goes to show that they are afraid of these communities. They know the power that black and brown communities have when it comes to voting. Um, I mean, even just before um, the, the water one, they can't go to, um, they can't do the, the big drive to the vote from church on Sundays. Who else is that supposed to affect black churches? Because that's what they would do when there was an important vote. They would send buses to go to um, the polls. And so, yeah, that, that, that just shows to me that it's a, it's a power battle that they're trying to wage against these communities. Um, and they could argue that this is all about, our uh, we're protecting the vote because of, they don't think Donald Trump lost, whatever, but it's really just to save their own futures, their own political gains. Um, so, yeah. So I want to turn, if, if we could, to the trial of uh, ex-officer, unless Chris, you wanted to jump in, I'm sorry. Yeah, the, the trial of ex-police officer Derek Chauvin, um, you know, that uh, this has just really captivated the country's attention um, since, you know, the, a very visual and, and video uh, of the man losing his life um, on the ground uh, in, a, in the most humiliating way, uh, you know, just made headlines around the world. Um, 
what was interesting about this trial is that when the defense started their opening statement, they stressed the fact that this is not a social justice case. Um, and while they were stressing the fact that we need to strictly follow the four corners of the law, you know, was he following his training is what they were trying to get at. Was he being, you know, was he acting on his instruct his, his, his training and was he responding in way in a way in which an officer, a reasonable officer in his position would respond uh, to this scenario. The prosecution on the other hand, portrayed the bystanders, um, you know, that as a, a quote, uh, a veritable bouquet of humanity. Uh, they stressed the fact that you had a firefighter nearby, you had a mixed martial arts fighter, you had a high school student, you had a nine-year-old cousin of the high school student with the t-shirt uh, with the words love, with the word love on it. Um, and so they were trying to emphasize the humanity of uh, George Floyd and, and the humanity of the bystanders uh, looking on. Um, and so in this situation, it's interesting to know, uh, you know, what exactly um, is at stake here in terms of the charges. Uh, breaking down the charges, uh, we're looking at second degree unintentional murder, uh, which would mean that Chauvin caused George Floyd's death while assaulting him. Uh, the presumed sentence would be 10 and three quarters of a year to 15 years. Uh, the third degree murder charge uh, would mean that someone caused the death of another by perpetuating an act eminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind, which means that he didn't he did not have the uh, required mental state to actually commit the murder. He, he just happened to be a result of what he was doing, um, you know, without regard for human life. Uh, historically, this has been used to prosecute drug dealers who sold drugs to individuals who died as a result. The presumed sentence would be 10 and three quarters of a year to 15 years. Um, you know, if you're looking at second degree manslaughter, you're looking that that means that Chauvin was culpably negligent and took an unreasonable risk with Floyd's life. Um, that also would carry a, a sentence of 10 to three quarters of a year to 15 years. Uh, but what's not on trial is intent. Uh, prosecutors don't need to prove intent to murder uh, George in order to convict Chauvin. And what's also noteworthy is that um, the burden of proof never shifts from the prosecution to the defendant side. Um, you know, you're innocent in this country until you're proven guilty. I want to get your thoughts on this trial. Um, also, some of the witnesses that have come forward, uh, for instance, the, the 911 dispatcher, uh, you know, was on trial and, and explained the call she had to make to her superior. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, whether that changes the trajectory of this trial, that coupled with the other witnesses. Don't all speak at once. I, 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 so I don't know how much more mental abuse at black people we could take with these trials. I, I um, admittedly, you know, I know, um, even though I tend to be uh, in the front lines and, and definitely siding and being there for the families and, and definitely with civil rights movements and social justice, for whatever reason, I, I find myself not putting my full heart and attention into this trial because if this somehow goes left, I don't know what else to believe in. I feel like, you know, there's always been something where uh, Trayvon Martin, we didn't have video. Uh, Rodney King, we didn't have all the video. Um, there's always been something, but this time all the elements, all the witnesses, everything is pointing to one direction and if some way, somehow, there's an acquittal, I, I just don't know if I can uh, emotionally take that, you know. Um, so I, I think 
we're, we're, in a, we're at a point now where we're trying, I think what I've seen of the trial, and I, again, I'm not watching it and staying all day um, in front of the TV like I normally would, uh, but what I do see is I see a lot of emotion in the courtroom. I see a lot of people who were witnesses that have been scarred in their, in the, in their life because they witnessed somebody killed. Uh, and strangely enough, and, 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 and this is a little different, I see a lot of survivors remorse going on where people are, you know, really remorseful that they didn't risk their own life to save this man's life um, that was being choked away in front of them. So I, I think regardless of what the charge is, I don't think it's going to be enough. Even if it comes back and he gets 10 years, um, 10 years is not that long, you know, when it comes down to taking out. Um, someone's life. And I think in this situation where the ripple effects cause so much corporate movement, all these corporations giving money and all these people finally realized this was enough. I don't know why this one was enough because I, I, I was enough uh, 20 years ago, but for whatever reason, this one was enough that people were like, we're going to change the way we do business. We're going to give more towards equitable treatment of, of Brown and black people. We're going to do more. Uh, on a corporate level, at, on a government level, everybody was moving in that direction. So I think because of that, this needs to be a lesson and they need to come down as heavy handed on this officer as they can. Yeah, I'll also, you know, I echo the same sentiments that Edwin had just, had just shared as well. I mean, I, I have found it difficult to even have a desire to follow this trial closely and intimately given the history um, of trials similar to this, just like he mentioned um, the trial of Trayvon Martin, you know, you think going back to Rodney King, Michael Brown, you know, unfortunately there are so many names that are, that can be included in this list. And um, unfortunately there being a, a, a lack of true justice uh, given to those individuals um, does weigh on my, my mental psyche. Right. And, um, you know, knowing the fact that there is an extended video beyond just the, the, the eight minutes and 47 seconds that we all had to witness uh, last summer, which I can't even watch anymore because it's just so traumatizing. Um, but understanding that this man had a life, he, he had loved ones and he deserved to he deserves to be living today. Um, it's just where it's just where my mind is right now. Um, but there has to be a moment where a, a true reckoning and justice where you know, we're not just looking to um, provide a settlement to the family from the city or from the police department, which we always see happen, but there has to be a way in which law enforcement can be held accountable for um, brutalizing humans, right? Like there has to be some sort of reckoning that comes through. Um, and, and I think that this has to be that moment. Now, am I, do I believe that it'll happen? I'm, I'm just not sure, just given the history. Uh, I'm not the legal scholar like some of you are on this call, but that is my hope. My hope is that um, justice is found in this case. Uh, my hope is that the family of George Floyd and his loved ones um, can, can you know, you know, feel encouraged by the decision of the jury. Um, I hope that um, Black America can also be encouraged by the um, the 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 conclusion that is made by the jury, but do I do I believe it'll happen? I'm I'm just not sure. That that is my hope. Um, I also in the same sort of 
<clears throat> mental headspace um, of not being able to. I I I never did watch the video. I just could not bring myself to do it. There was nothing that I needed to see to prove to me that that is that what we're all thinking is you know the problem is likely exactly the problem. Um, and I think that it's really interesting the way that the way that a lot of corporations have sort of like suddenly been like, all right, we're gonna do this and this and this. But I kind of see it as like you know, racism is bad for business suddenly. So they're like, all right, <laughs> you know, it sounds like we really got to post a, I don't know, a pin tweet about black businesses they can buy their moisturizer. I don't know. Like just very, like very performative sort of moves in terms of uh, showing support, right? Um, and then with George Floyd specifically, I think it's been really interesting to see how different people, especially our representatives, have been talking about it. Because it's almost like, yeah, remember George Floyd that one time? That was really hard, right? Yeah, it's a good thing we got past that. Like, no, it's not just George Floyd. We, I don't want us to make this an isolated event. I don't want them to think that I am going to allow them to paint this as an isolated event. Because yes, it's George Floyd, but it's also every black person before that, every person of color, any person who had, been, who had been previously brutalized by, at the hands of our law enforcement, it is also all about them, right? It's about a history of, of, of very, very targeted, intentional um, actions, systems that have been designed to make sure that only certain people maintain power and the rest are out of luck. And so even the initial response, you know, we talked about, about some of the, unfortunately, even the way that, even the way that Biden kind of, you know, addressed that, it was, that, Breonna Taylor, a, a lot of the way that we addressed that really this entire movement, um, it's been a lot of condemning, right, and, and, and not a whole lot of action, and then also the idea that we would even have to appeal to or, or, or show the humanity of someone like George Floyd, what, why are we even having that conversation right now? He's passed. You know what I'm saying? He's already passed. And so I was talking to my friend about this earlier and she was just like, who's on trial here? And that's really the question. Who is on trial? This is someone who has been a victim of a brutal murder, right? It, it swept the nation because we had the video where even people who previously wouldn't have necessarily been a part of the conversation were posting black squares on their social media, felt the need to, you know, to make a statement, this can no longer be, what you know, whatever it is. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know. I, it, it, it really pains me to even think that, you know, they talked a lot about the $20 bill, they're trying to find, why is any of that relevant? He, he's not here. We saw what happened. You know what I'm saying? So this is going to be a, a really, really serious um, sort of turning point. And I think also as we have different communities, and I know um, we may touch on this, um, you know, a little bit later, but as we have different communities also having their own sort of like personal um, awakening in terms of realizing, you know, where a lot of their problems lie. I don't see this happening. I, I don't see this working for very much longer. People are like we said, we're fatigued. We're exact Chris, we were in college when 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 we had the um for, for Mike Brown. We 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 did that was wait, that was pre-Trump, you know what I'm saying? That was pre-that entire conversation. We've already we've always known, you know. I'm looking at my little self in this little thing. I'm like, girl, you're doing a lot. But yeah, that's I yeah. You know, no, no, and and to your point, you know, the the, the defense has 
you know, they, the prosecution, what's interesting with this case is that the prosecution, uh, when Ben Crump gave that press conference, uh, he said, you know, we already know what we're going to get from the defense. We know they're going to call him everything but a child of God, he said. Um, he said, we know that they're going to try to portray him as a drug abuser. We know he's, they're going to try to get at his health. We're going to, we know they're going to try to say that he was, he bought the cop to that position and other people's bystanding uh, uh, aggravated the police to get him to that position. We know that's what they're going to do. So they came out, I think they came out the pen swinging, swinging uh, trying to humanize George Floyd and paint a picture of who he was before the defense can characterize who he was. Um, but, you know, the question remains, was this an action that a reasonable officer would have taken, Paul? Yeah, I think that, I think that, that like kind of gets to the heart of this issue. Because policing has been so unreasonable for so long, all of the standards of reasonableness, especially because they're defined alongside every police officer, are a little strange, right? Like the things that we would ever expect a police officer to do. Like there was a video that was going around on Twitter today of a police officer trying to detain someone and punching him in the face to the ground, right? And I think that most of us would say, well, if anyone else did that, they would be going to jail for some time, right? But because policing has never had any national standards, because it differs from place to place, and because it's really, they're really in a great place of argumentation being able to say, I felt I feared for my life. I had to do this. I had to do that. I am really, I think it's unlikely that we'll see a lot of change come out of this case just because of the broad amount of leeway and breadth that that police have, at least in terms of the sentencing. Um, but I do think that it is a really interesting way to open the conversation about what it means for police officers to have to be able to act with such impunity. Um, and maybe now that people kind of see it, especially, and not to, mince words, but people who are not black, right? Like, like when you're black, you, for the most part, see, hear, or understand about these things from a very early age on a pretty consistent basis throughout your life. So it is not any news that police can be aggressive. But I think that it, it raises awareness and it really raises that kind of sense of something's wrong in this country to other people, not just black people. And that that for this moment is very, very, very valuable. And the question is, how do we capitalize on that? How do we talk about it? And how do we get to a place where we actually start to say, police need to have more standards. Someone should have to police them. And I think that that's hopefully a conversation at the very minimum that we can get out of this. Yeah, I would agree. And I think um, for me, I guess just to we say what everyone else has been saying in terms of like, I haven't been able to like watch the trial. I've just been like reading up highlights because like we said earlier, there's been a lot of emotion from even just the highlights that I've seen. And I'm just like, this is a lot. I'll just read because I can get a gist of what this is all about without having to watch it in live time. But I think one of my main concerns is that no matter what the decision is, um, acquittal or the highest of sentencing for um, this person that essentially no change will come out of it either way. Um, the same thing sort of will happen over and over again, where either they, if he gets um, the fullest amount of sentencing for all of his charges, which I doubt, but like say if that were to happen, I could see this being again, people saying, well, I'll, he was acquitted. So we've changed, we've come this far or he was, he got the full sentence and we've come this far. And then we continue with our lives until the next major, um, I mean, this happens every day, but the next one that gets the most amount of press and media attention, and we're back in the, the, the same drawing board. And then on the other end, he gets acquitted and it's just like, well, that's the norm. 
Um, so I guess that's my main concern. And at the end of the day, like, at the end of the day, what we want is justice in the sense that we don't have to worry about, we don't have to get to a trial because we are not treated in this way anymore. I think that's like the real justice here. And so um, what we were saying earlier, what Paul was saying in terms of like national standards and who polices the police, especially like you can see from the witnesses who were um, EMTs, off-duty firefighters, they were calling the police on the, pol the police. And it's just like, what do you do when you see um, someone that you're supposed to respect or um, who has a lot of power abuse it? Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of how I see the whole situation. So just to land the plane, um, you know, I do want to talk about something in the realm of foreign policy before we end. Um, and that is the, the, the fact that the Iran nuclear deal, um, you know, had, you know, those who saw the, the, the or paid attention to the deal uh, being negotiated in 2015 when you had Secretary of State at the time, John Kerry and Obama, go going through a lot to get the, JC the, the, the JCPOA countries to get into an agreement with Iran, um, to, to get to a, a, an understanding and, and finally getting a deal together only for the 2016 election and all of the, the craziness that it bought, um, you know, to have Republicans like Trump, you had Sarah Palin on the stump for Trump, railing against what they called a bad deal. Um, you, you, of course, had President Trump pull the United States out of the Iran nuclear deal in 2018. And so, you know, the fact that it was so difficult to get in, uh, you know, understandably makes it now even harder for any other agreement to to, to, to be reached now. Uh, but, you know, President Biden's team, uh, you know, do think that in the next coming weeks, this could make or break any chances for the new administration to reach an understanding. Uh, you know, I want to get your thoughts on whether you think you know, now that we have a new Secretary of, uh, of State, um, Anthony Anthony Blinken, a new State Department, a new world policy, um, what are your expectations? Uh, you know, what are your thoughts on the possibility of entering into a new nuclear deal with Iran? Um, I'll go quickly. Um, and before we go, congratulations in, uh, on your graduation, all you 3L people. I won't. I probably won't get a chance to say that again. So congratulations, major, 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 major. Um, I, our 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 government wasn't meant to make, have these huge swings in in foreign policy. You know, it wasn't meant for I, I, there to be these huge treaties made, and then uh, the next administration pull out of it, right? I always bring people back to the reality that, you know, Bill Clinton is credited for NAFTA, but it was actually passed under Bush, right? It was actually a Bush initiative. But at that point, the United States wasn't into um, reneging on major treaties, international treaties like that. So um, the Iran deal was not so much that it was bad. I think there was some lack of foresight because I truly believe that uh, Kerry felt like the next administration was going to be a democratic one and the implementation was going to be able to go into effect. I don't think there was anyone that would, would think that there would be that dramatic of a swing in our democracy. Um, so when you look forward to what the Iran deal is, rightfully so, I can't believe I'm siding with Iran, but I'm going to side with them. I would be a little hesitant to think whether we're going to abide by this 
What if, uh, you know, the White House changes again in 2024? Are we going to be right back to, you know, here we go. We laid out all of our plans, all the places that we have. We let people in. And now the next president is like, well, I'm not abiding by that anyway. Uh, go back to what you are after you show me your card. So I, I, I think there's going to be a hesitance. It's going to be a much tougher deal because I don't think the trust of the international community is there yet. Yeah, and that trust cannot be restored just in a few months after the turnover from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. You're not going to just say, oh, well, we have, you know, a new secretary of state and, and president who preaches the idea of, you know, following norms both domestically and in terms of foreign policy. People are not just going to just take those orders and follow them. So Egwu makes a really good point. Um, it is interesting. It's also going to be interesting to see how this administration moves going forward, because, it, it, you know, according to my understanding, um, Iran is a, is about to undergo their own election season um, for their own presidential election. And once that election season takes off, it'll be really hard for um, any candidate that's running or, you know, looking to get into office, um, you know, being willing to even, you know, come to the table or even put another nuclear um, agreement on the table while they're trying to run. And so I, I, to my understanding that that campaign season starts in May. So between now and, and late spring, the Biden administration has to come to the table and make some type of agreement in order for um, the, the economic sanctions that have been, that have been levied against um, Iran to either be relieved or you know somewhat relieved, um, but also in exchange for there to be um, a, a decrease in their uh, nuclear capability. So it's going to be interesting to see how this administration moves forward. I do know that there's a very slim timeline um, that they're that they're considering um, in bringing Iran to the table. But as Eagle was saying, like America has to find a way to you know be a country of its word, um, and as for and for us to be able to you know eliminate that instability that we've seen um, you know pushed forward by the, the by the Trump administration, so that we can be a country that's being taken seriously going forward at the uh, global stage. So the Biden team did put forward a proposal um, to. But they're they're asking for Iran to stop uh, its nuclear activities, um, such as working on advanced centrifuges and the enrichment of uranium to twenty percent impurity, um, in exchange for some relief from U.S. economic sanctions. Um, this is according to one of the folks who are in the Biden State Department team. Um, but Tehran balked at what it saw as an unequal offer. Uh, in response, it suggested that it would halt uranium enrichment for a month in exchange for the U.S. lifting all of its sanctions. Um, and so, you know, to your point, Chris and Paul and, and Ed, you know, it, seem, it seemed like it seems like because of the position the United States is now in to trying to restore its credibility, um, you have now an increased bargaining chip on the side of Iran uh, to say, well, if you really want me to get back in this deal, all sanctions have to be on the table um, and, you know, it makes it even more difficult. Um, and, you know, I had uh, the president of the Council of Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, on a few weeks back, and, you know, he even expressed um, you know, uncertainty as to whether or not it is possible to get into another idea, random nuclear deal in the foreseeable future. But he did say, you know, sanctions cannot be, you know, negotiable, negotiable, you know, that, that has to be there. And, and, and he said any deal that does not include uh, increased sanctions on these nuclear activities isn't worth the paper it's written on. Uh, any other thoughts? Well, I wanted to say um, just from my background being a global studies major, um, this lack of trust um, on the Iran side is not just from Trump 
um, and it's not just from Obama, it started decades ago um, in the, the, the late 20th century. And so they, there's no, there's, I guess there's, and now with what has happened with Trump and then they're looking at the U.S. saying you can barely handle your own country. You almost your government was almost overthrown just almost three months ago. How are we supposed to trust you with anything? Um, and so this is very much, I guess, for Biden, but also for the country at large, definitely a show of can we even handle foreign relations anymore? Can anyone trust us right now? And I would say the answer is no. And so the power is on Iran's side. They hold the power. They can say no to any anything that the U.S. comes with because at the end of the day, y'all need more from us than we need from you. Um, and so Biden has to, it's a thin line that Biden's walking on and um, definitely there is going to be struggle to compromise. And then of course, of, in with their election coming up time again, um, will they be able to have be able to meet in the middle before their elections? And then even then after their elections, will that stand anymore? Um, I personally think that, I mean, they could, they, they should try as much as they can, but really to hold no, I guess, weight to it until after their elections, because again, that could all go out the window, just like with our elections that all went out the window for them. Um, so yeah, I would, I, I trust is something that you build over, not just with um, each change in presidency that is built over decades and almost centuries in some cases. Um, so I, I, I don't know, I don't see this going that well for us on the US end. Any other thoughts? Well, if not, I just wanna go ahead and thank uh, this amazing panel. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Such brilliant people. Uh, Dabney Bryce, Egu Nongpa, Chris Johnson, Paul Lisbon and Camilla Mudd. Thank you so much, I'm so grateful. Uh, for your presence and for what you brought to the table. I want to go ahead and, uh, you know, just inform those who, who view, uh, rather you've, whether you view regularly or for the first time, uh, the political mic would resume in May. Um, this will be the last one for a little while. I'm going to pick up in May, um, you know, at, but I just want to keep you all informed. Please stay tuned. Uh, please stay informed citizens and refrain from sketchy news sources, as I always say. Um, and I want to thank you all for, again, what you brought to the table. Um, Paul and I were looking, we're counting down the clock, you know, and he that endured to the end. Uh, so <laughs> we're thankful that we're at the end of this journey, uh, praying to get through this, uh, this, this gauntlet. Uh, but thank you all so much. Have a good evening.